Hey there, Marksman. Matt here. Welcome to episode number 51 of the Everyday Marksman, the podcast where it is all about tactical skills for living a more adventurous life. I'm glad you could join me today. In this episode, we're going to talk about how to configure your rifle. And more importantly, it's going to be how not to configure your rifle. You see, on the website, one of my most popular articles is about your very first AR-15. And there I introduce the concept of the minimum capable carbine. Credit to the late Pat Rogers. And this is an idea about a general purpose rifle that will do most things pretty well without being particularly great at any one thing. Now, in my advice for buying pretty much anything, I always say let the configuration be driven by the mission. Mission dictates is another way of putting that one. And I think sometimes that can go too far. So what caught my attention here for this interview with Jeff Gerwich, who is the second time with me, and he's a 26-year veteran of Special Forces, he had a video on his YouTube channel, which you'll find in today's show notes at everydaymarksman.co, and he was talking about why you should not configure the rifle for a particular mission. And of course that meant I, I had to bring him on because... Did that conflict with my advice? Did it not? Well, you'll have to listen and find out. But my advice is based around thinking in much broader terms about how do you want to employ the weapon. Now, for me, that's a lot more to do with it doesn't make any sense to take a precision rifle and run it like a CQB rifle or to build a super accurate precision rifle and feed it junk ammo. Likewise, it doesn't make a lot of sense if you're going to build a really, really short, handy rifle and then want to shoot at range all the time with it at long distance. So, you know, there's special specializations there, but there's compromises too. You see, every time you make a rifle better at any particular role, you're making it worse at others, which is why my advice is always about something a bit more general. Now, in this interview, Jeff is going to get quite a bit more detail into how he thinks that should work and examples from his experience overseas that get into that. And like I said, I'm going to do this interview a little bit differently in that you're going to hear me interject every once in a while as parts of the conversation. Now, Jeff, if you're listening to this one, I know our conversation wandered all over the place. I'm not going to keep all of that in this episode, but I'm going to use a lot of it later on uh, in more episodes as we get deeper into this idea about American martial arts. Now, with that, let's get on to the interview. All right, Jeff, welcome back to the Everyday Marksman. Thank you. Now, if you don't mind, give people a quick snapshot of your background. Uh, Jeff Gerwich, 19 years of Special Forces, 26 years total in the regular Army. Right now, I'm actually a full-time student, but of course, part-time, I do some freelance writing for American Cop Magazine right now, DefenseReview.com, and I'm running my own YouTube channel, Modern Tactical Shooting. All right. Thanks. So I, I want to get you back because I'm a big fan of your YouTube channel and I, and you, you more than anybody else have got me on the I want an AK bandwagon lately. One of the things you, you wrote, you pinned a video about recently just caught my attention. And that was, you said, don't build your rifle to suit the mission at hand. Yes. Um, so before I get into kind of your reasoning for that, I want to kind of give my, my, my background because I think we're actually closer than we are further apart. Okay. But like the, what I have said in the past has been, hey, have an idea of what you actually want to use it for before you go just diving down the rabbit hole and make sure that use is realistic. Because my advice has been like, 
you, you don't need to go build out a you know, stainless steel half MOA match barrel with crazy optics if you're only ever going to shoot 55 grain bulk ammo at less than 100 yards. Um, yes. You, know, you, should, you should consider those questions. But you kind of went a lot deeper than that based on your experience with Iraq and Afghanistan. So um, let's go. What was, what was your take on that? Well, I, I agree with you what you said in the beginning. And that's why at the end of my video, I do, I do touch on that. You have to look at your use. So let's divide it into civilian shooters and military. You know, as a civilian shooter, if you're in competitive shooting, you've got to build the gun to match that sport. If you want, if you're just into target shooting and an all-around general shooter, you just need a quality rifle and an optic suited to, you know, your environment. And you kind of touched on it. There's no reason to go ahead and drop $2,000 on, a, you know, a veritable powered optic or, or an LPVO. If your local range, you can only shoot out to 100 yards. You'll never get your money's worth out of that scope. Buy a red dot, you can do all the shooting there is, you know, and it's also a great defensive rifle. Now, on the military side, uh, you've got to obviously look at the mission, but that's where in experience and where I talk about in the video, the training scars, there's more to looking at the mission. And if you set it up based on the mission, uh, you're wrong. You've got to look how the enemy fights and really how the enemy fights should actually be dictating how you set up your rifle. So I think that's, that's an important point. Um, you said how the enemy fights and not necessarily how you plan to fight. Um, yes. So I, I think one of the examples you gave was about like, Hey, if you set yourself up for like these old nice shorty Mark 18 CQB things, and then you said that's only a third of the fight. Would you mind yes. kind of like expanding on that? Yeah. And that's a great example. Uh, so, and I literally, I got this from friends who served in Baghdad. I was in Northern Iraq, not, not heavy fighting at all, but you know, guys who served in Baghdad, they had the CQB mission going out and fighting the Marty army. They'd either drive to the target or walk to the target from the moment they left the gate of their, of their base, they'd be shooting it out with militiamen taking, you know, one to two, three, 400 meter shots, get to the target, do their CQB. And there's lots of videos out there of SF guys fighting in courtyards, fighting at room distance, CQB where it's at. But then you go to the roof because you got to secure that building. Again, you're taking long range shots at dudes running around the streets and, you know, multiple buildings in the way, buildings away shooting at you. Time to leave the objective. You got to fight your way all the way, you know, all the way back to the base. So one third of the fight is getting to the target. A third of the fight is on the target. And the last third is getting back to your base. So when you look at it broken down by thirds, the CQB shorty gun was the best setup for only one third of the mission. The other two thirds, a gun with better reach and an optic better suited for longer shooting was actually the ultimate setup. So if you were stripped of choices, and of course in SOCOM we had optic and gun choices, if you were stripped of choices, you could only roll one setup. When you break it down like that, well, then, then I, you know, what they call a recce build might, might have been the way to go, which is, you know, a longer 14 and a half to 16 inch gun with an LPVO. That way for the two thirds of the mission, you are swinging out at two and 300 yards, partially exposed enemy, you know, sticking their heads around corners. Uh, you know, you could zap those guys. So you just mentioned the recce format, which I know is, is kind of like the, I've written about this. It's kind of this idea. I know, I know the whole history of it. I can link to it, link to it in my notes down here. Um, but I said the same thing that this seems like a really good general purpose style of, of rifle 
just a well suited to do just about anything pretty well. Um, what is your take on like, what does that look like? You said 14 and a half, 16 inch barrel LPVO, but what else? If, if I had to just go with one setup, I would, uh, and I wouldn't necessarily go with a recce. They're long and heavy. Uh, I'd probably start out with the gun that I started my last tour with, with, and that was a Mark 18 upper, so a shorty upper, but I did have a LPVO and an offset red dot. So yes, a, you know, a 10 and a half inch barrel is ideally not the best long range mullet, but you know, at 300 meters, I'm still going to be able to kill you with it. But now with an LPVO, I'll be able to aim at your head. So I can hit that guy that's sticking his head around the corner and, you know, I have a way better chance of hitting a bad guy with an LPVO at, you know, medium range distance than I do with that red dot. And I can run it suppressed and it won't be too long and goofy and unwieldy. So if I had to just start out in kind of an unknown-ish area, that's what I would roll with. And then of course, later on for my last tour, I ended up going with something almost different, you know, completely different, but that was again, based on the enemy's actions. So something, something you just said caught again, caught my ear that I want to make sure that um, we address because I, I, so many of these conversations end up going around gear, which is understandably, that's the easy thing to talk about. But twice you said the guy peeking his head around the corner. And uh, I think sometimes it gets lost in the conversation about, about how people approach shooting. Most people who just go to the range and shoot paper, never going to be a thing. But if you start doing this in more long range competitions or uh, you go to like training where you have to go out into the field, you start seeing like not everything wants to be seen. And that's where you start seeing where like a red dot, which is great for a lot of circumstances, may not as ideal for that. Um, so where does this whole target identification thing fall in for you? You know, if you watch like the old movie Black Hawk Down, it looks like all the bad guys are running around up the open just spraying. In real life, even an untrained enemy has some semblance of how to use cover and concealment. They're all going to be running around out in the open. A full-size human target at 300 yards is an easy shot with a red dot. You know, it, it's totally doable, totally fine. A, a full-size human at 400 yards, if you know your holds, totally easy with a red dot. Now let's just add in a little bit of movement and say that guy is, again, partially exposed from a building. Uh, now you're beyond red dot capability of feasibility, or it's going to take you a long time to try and get a good hold on that guy. But again, if he has just even a little nuance of tactical skill, he's not going to stand that one corner stationary long enough for you to get apply the proper hold. You throw an LPVO on there, and you know whether you use a VDC or you've got a set reticle, if you know the range and you can zoom in, uh, instead of placing that red dot, which at 300 yards, a two-minute of angle red dot appears as a six-inch circle, now you've got that nice fine crosshair or dot in your LPVO, which you can actually place on a specific body part that's exposed. You now just increased your speed, being able to hit that guy, and you know your point of aim on that guy is going to be more precise. And obviously, the magnification is going to help see him. So you probably you just doubled your ability to hit that guy, and that's what you want in combat. He who shoots the first and the most accurate, you know, is going to usually win the fight. Okay, so also you mentioned an LPVO with a red dot. Uh, offset. So I think I've asked you yes. about this one before, but um, just kind of iterate the thinking on this. I've been seeing this pop up in a lot of places now where it seems like that's the question I get is why have both? If I have an LPVO, wasn't the point that it's a do-all. So why am I putting an offset on it? Well, here's the funny thing. In the last two years, it seems 
the, the on the tactical YouTube channels, they just discovered dual optic guns. You know, even though we've been using you know, piggyback optics since as early as 2005, first time I saw one, and my first dual or 45 degree offset one, you know, I got in 2010. So they've been around for what, going on 12 years now, but why roll with that? Uh, I'll use my tour in Afghanistan as a good example. My VCOG, which was one to six and back in 2015, that was the height of technology, it was either that or a razor, and it's dated now. There are better optics out there, but you know, at the time I thought this is the optic I wanted. It, it stayed on six power my entire tour. And in that tour, just because just of the way it rolled out, I never saw any threats under 100 yards. So staying on six power, you know, made sense and I used it the whole time. But in during those village clearance operations, you know, had a target appeared, especially at room distance, yeah, you know, it's a lot, it's still always a lot faster just to throw that red dot on red dot on it and, and blaze away. Again, at CTB distance, you can't beat a red dot. Even a modern LPVO, uh, I have not seen one yet. And again, I'm kind of dated in my optics because I bought one recently, but like my VCOG is not a true one power. The Vortex Razor 1 to 6 is still not a true one power. There's still a little, you know, I don't know if the parallax is the right word, but it's still not as fast and as clear as a red dot. So if you train to keep your, you know, your LPVO on max magnification, and then you've got your red dot right there, you know, turning the rifle that quarter turn, you know, takes a 10th of a second. It's faster than dialing. So going from one to six on your scope, uh, and, it can, and most importantly, it can become instinctive. So when you're under the pressure of a fight, no matter what cool tactics, you know, if you haven't trained to make them instinctive, they're not going to work. So if you are rolling around on six power and you forget to dial it down to one while you're in that village and this and that, that can obviously cause problems. But if you train to anything past 100 yards, I'll use the LPVO. Anything under 100 yards, I'll write to rotate the gun to the offset. You train that enough and it becomes inst instinctive under pressure. So when you're faced with that threat, you don't even think about it. And that's what you all right, now that sound effect means I have to interject here for a second because the next part of the audio actually got cut off. It was Jeff had a really great answer, and it's a question I know you're thinking right now, which is, well, if this is the case, that the optic with the offset red dot is the new way of doing things, then why not go with a fixed 4X ACOG or prism scope, something lightweight with that offset red dot? And Jeff's answer focused on making sure you had redundancy. So in this circumstance, if you're going to run with an LPVO or really any fixed optic and an offset offset optic, you're probably not going to use iron sights. So by using the LPVO, which can go down to 1x, you now have two ways giving yourself that 1x capability. So in his example, it was also saying that if he was back in Afghanistan and you know he could, if he knew he was going to be doing close-in fighting, he could zoom his main optic down to 1x and use it that way the entire time, uh, but he didn't have to. So basically this comes down to redundancy and the new way of doing things. All right. Now let's get back to the rest of the interview. And I think dual optics is the new standard. Mm -hmm. Red dots out, single optic out. You know, that's why you see, and I referenced in my video, guys who went to Syria, what most of them had LPVOs. You saw some red dots and you saw some you know, magnifiers and stuff like that. But really the dual optic combo is the new standard. But specifically the dual optic LPVO with red dot. Yes, is the new standard. Okay. And and do you think there's a preference between offset or piggyback? Now, just in the last three or four years, it is definitely 
offset because I think guys are definitely learning how impractical piggyback is. It was, you know, it was a, it was a solution to a problem, a, a quickie, but that's why 45 degree offsets rule in competition because they're the most practical, they're the most fast, very little hold of height above bore. Whereas piggyback, you know, you have a lot of issues, especially, you know, what range you zeroing that thing at. Okay. Um, because the other thing I've been seeing pop up, especially when it comes to like the tactical games, um, is going back to red dot with magnifier as well. I've been seeing that one come up a bunch too. I, I've just never been a fan of red dot with magnifier just because there's so much parallax issues with, uh, if you don't know how to line up and, and zero your, get your, the correct, you know, I guess, hold off between your magnifier and the red dot, there can be some distortion there. And I've seen guys completely thrown off by it. So on that topic, would you say the irons are still worth learning today? I think traditional iron sights are should be completely scrapped and they should be 45 degree offset because no matter what you do in the military, you're going to be issued some sort of optic and it's hopes and dreams that if your optic goes down, that you're like, say you're running an LPVO, you can't put your backup iron sight up until you take that optic off. You know, it's hopes and dreams. You're going to have time to do that. If they're already built in offset to the gun, they're right there no matter what you're you know running and then later on if you end up a commander you end up with an offset red dot you've already trained on canting that gun and rolling it over a little bit so i think the modern setup guns should be set with offset iron sights because some sort of optic is the standard now all right so noted iron sights and no optic guns are on the way out um so back to optics then are you more of a bdc or mrad radical kind of guy i'm all bd i'm bdc they are the, yes, people are going to say there's not, they're not as accurate. It's true. They're not. If you sit there on a flat range, you're doing slow fire on a, on a known range, on a KD range, BDCs are not as accurate because you're not really matching the bullet to the reticle. But they are way faster and they are accurate enough. Because let's face it, if I zero my gun, no matter what optic I'm using, if I zero it in North Carolina, and all of a sudden I deploy to Afghanistan, I've probably changed 5,000 feet in elevation and there's a massive temperature change. So that zero is gone anyways. And if I don't have a chance to re-zero and check my ammo, it, that, that super precise mil, mil dot scope is, isn't as accurate to begin with. BDC gets you close enough. And if you know your holds, you get a chance to shoot out to distance with that BDC. Uh, you know, you can be pretty damn, you can be combat accurate, which is, you know, really what you need. And that's why BDCs, they're still pretty popular in three gun because yes, mill lines are more accurate, but the name of the game is speed. You've got to, you know, you got to get your hits first. So uh, a phrase you just said in there was combat accurate. And I think you're a great resource to this because most time I talk to competitive shooters and of course competition is going to try and make these small targets you have to hit and dial for. But in the, in terms of like combat accurate, um, how do you define like effective fire? So I would like to make every shot a one-shot kill, but you know the combat accurate is if you're getting blazed at, say from around 500 yard, 500 yardish line. Uh, when I fire my first one or two shots, you know I, ideally I want them. If I don't get a dead-on hit, if they're close enough where I can at least see the splash of the bullet, you know, breaking brush, hitting hitting the dirt, hitting the rocks. I can make my quick correction and then start pumping rounds into it. Uh, Combat accurate, you know, is if we look at an MOA, I mean, I'm happy with a two, two and a half MOA gun and bullet 
that, that keeps it, you know, small enough to be, you know, effective out to 500 yards. I don't care what type of gun you use. When you're talking 5.56, five, it's really a 500-meter gun. You just want to throw an optic on there to increase your chances of hitting within that 500 yards or meters. Uh, you, yes, you'd be, yes, you can hit out to 680 with an M4 and a 14 half inch barrel. We did it in training all the time. Um, and you're still putting a hole in somebody. Are you going to kill them? Well, they might die in a few hours, but they probably stop shooting at you. But really, you know, it, it's, a, it's it, I know it's at least a solid 500 meter gun. You have enough power in there where you punch them in the lungs. They're going to feel it and they're gonna, at least going to stop biting you. Because uh, unlike action movies, bad guys, when they're wounded, they don't fight to the death. A lot of them, that's it. Time's up, they're done. Goes back to that old Vietnam thing. We want to wound them and all that. Of course, in combat, I don't like just wounding either. That's why usually if they're good enough for one, you give them two, three, four, five, six, whatever it takes to get the job done. And again, you give them, if you train to give them pee for plenty, you know, you do five rounds to the chest, so they're not walking off anytime soon. Uh, but I guess that's my best way of answering that. <laughs> I think that's, no, that's good enough. Answer. Going down, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of I'm not a, a terminal ballistics professional. <laughs> Um, all right. So I want to talk about training a little bit. Training. Um, because one of the, I, I think it was you or maybe it was somebody who was in, in um, the Everyday Marksman Discord kind of made this observation. But um, how much of some of the things we've seen with how people might configure their guns are based on this is where they train. So it's optimized for where they train in those scenarios, even though that's, to your point, not how they're actually going to get fought against. You know, do you see limitations there? Oh, yes. And I mean, a million percent in the military. So again, unless you're in special operations, you don't have a choice. You get issued your one optic, your one rifle setup, and you're going to make do. And, and there's merit to that. You can get good with one setup. I'm not saying, oh, oh heck, I got a red dot. There goes anything past 300. No, you can still get great with a gun. It's just when we're looking at optimum setups. So of course, in special operations, we get choices. But, you know, training scars do get induced because, you know, if 75% of your training is out of the flat range and you're doing what we call them stress tests in the Army, but really it's just, you know, uh, it's, it's like shooting a, a gun match, you know, sitting on the stage. And you want to beat your buddies, you're going to rely on that one setup where you can go out in the flat range, you can blaze all day long. Is the best combat setup, though. Normally, guys don't start thinking about the combat setup portions until they're getting ready for, like, a pre-deployment. And then they're like, okay, now I'm going to throw on my power optics and I'm going to do all this other stuff. But you spent the majority of the last three or four months training with like a range setup. And now you're going to go to your combat setup, whereas you should have been analyzing what you're about to face, maybe going with that, you know, combat setup based on what you're about to face the whole time. And like in, the, like in, like in my video, I talk about in CQB, the shoot houses are meant to be live fire inside the house only. We want to do our best during live fire in CQB. So we bust out the shorties and the red dots. It's the best platform for CQB. But in reality, while you're conducting CQB, there's going to be guys shooting at you hundreds of yards away. And you need to be able to handle that threat while you're doing CQB. Yeah, I, I don't have to. I'm about to go back and update some of my advice from then on. But I feel like that's also some of like the, like the, uh, it's not worth worrying about that until you're at that level in, in a way. Like you can mm -hmm. get by with the basics for a while before you're really worried. A long about time. 
Uh, but I'm I'm always thinking optimum. Mm-hmm. Again, if you give me an iron sight rifle, I can shoot irons pretty damn well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, now, I went to Desert Storm with an M16A2. Uh, you know, you can you can totally make do. I'm not saying all right, you're gonna be set up for failure. That's why I talk about Marines and Fallujah. You know, they were given what they got and they did a hell of a job. Mm. I'm just saying if you have the capabilities and the options to set up the optimal setup to keep you alive, then why not go for it? And just do it smartly, not based on the mission. That's naive, base it on how the enemy fights. Right now, a couple of times in this conversation, you've mentioned it being instinctive. I want to get your take on. What does it mean to, or how would you get somebody to be more instinctive with how they're running their weapon in a real world scenario? That is a great question. And, it, and I think it goes pretty deep. I'm not a uh, psychologist or anything like that, but uh, I think there's a huge problem with how we train and your instinctive reactions. And not that you have to be a combat vet to be a master of you know tactical shooting. I'm not saying that at all, but People who have experience in gunfights, they're the ones who've actually been through this, and now they have a clue of what's going on. And this gets kind of into a tangent, but let's look at the double tap. Double tap works great. You get to the chest, it's a great response. But in reality, when you see a threat pop up, think of paintball. Let's not even think about tactics and stuff right now. When you're shooting paintball or sim munitions, when an enemy presents itself, what is your reaction on the trigger? Usually you gun that target until they sit down, they say, I quit. They start doing the crazy dance because they're getting peppered, but you're laying on that trigger, waiting for that reaction, that visible reaction. Just like when you watch cop videos of shootings, you know, they're at some, you know, gas station, they pull their pistol out and it's like, oh my God, why does this cop crank out, you know, 10 or 15 rounds? He's naturally going to be shooting until he sees a response. The victim falls down dead or you know, pleads to stop. Uh, it's, it's that fight or flight. So here's where the problem comes in. If you're training to shoot double taps all the time, you're going to instinctively shoot those double taps, okay? You're gonna have your first two well-aimed shots, but instinctively under pressure, your mind's gonna be going, keep shooting, keep shooting till you see them stop. So your first two rounds will be good, but then after that, you're just hosing away, feathering on the trigger, you have not trained to shoot a 10-round string or a 12-round string. You've been doing your double taps your whole career. So as opposed to let's let's train instinctively. Why don't why aren't we shooting? Why don't we dismiss the double tap? Why don't we be doing five-round strings at least? So now your initial presentation from the holster or bearing down with your rifle is you give five and you'll now have five well-aimed shots as opposed to a double tap well-aimed and then the other three are panic fire. You're just trying to hold the gun on target. You're not used to going that far with your strings of fire. And that's what I mean by instinctive is that, oh my God, get out of my face. And you see it again all the time. You don't even have to think guns. You see paintball, you see in Sims, people naturally lay on that trigger and hope for the best until they see a reaction. And we have to marry that with how we engage targets. I got one more, actually I have two more questions. One of them you've answered before, I mean, it's a different answer, but um, I do believe in your video, you mentioned you were going to start doing some training classes. I want to ask about uh, what got you interested in doing that. I've always wanted to do it. Uh, and I've, I've moonlighted for different uh, companies a little bit. Uh, I've always wanted to do it on my own, but you know, I live in North Carolina, the home of 10 bazillion commandos, active duty, retired, the home of tactical training. And the market has been super flooded for a long time. 
but I've decided I want to break out on my own now because not only is the market, you know, insanely flooded, I think there's lacking a lot of quality out there, but also I think prices, and I'm going to go after, you know, the industry, prices are crazy for tactical training, you know, and I am going to be undercutting what the average price is by a lot. Uh, that's the beauty of me being retired. I don't have to live on it and drive my whole income to being a tactical instructor. So I can tailor it to way more affordable uh, training because I don't think a day's training, I'll be honest, I don't think a day's training should cost you $350 for eight hours on the range. I would never pay it. So uh, I'm going to be way undercutting that. And I don't, uh, you know, I just think I have... You know, I've always wanted to do it. I don't want, not that I'm the master of tactical shooting, but, you know, I do like being able to pass on my lessons learned and hopefully it can help other people out. Uh, so, and get them to be better shooters. And just like in competitive shooting, when I started competitive shooting, I did it on my own. It took me six months to figure out what the hell I was doing at matches. I had no clue. So, you know, if I can help somebody get into competition and, and carry it on, because it goes into the larger picture of, you know, the whole two-way movement too, the more people are into guns, the better stronger we'll be, you know, if I can help out that aspect too. But I love instructing. I love training. I've done it in the army and I, you know, I want to do it now. And I think the time is right in that way. <laughs> no, I, th I think, I think that's appreciated. I, I mean, I, I agree with the idea that, and one of my biggest frustrations, and we're way off original topic now, but it's all right. One of my, one of my big frustrations is that in general with the second amendment community, I feel like you should want to go learn and better those skills to go back to like what I am brain farting names today, but like Jeff Cooper, Jeff Cooper, owning the gun doesn't make you armed. Like that's, it's all about, you know, your, your, how much you practice, how is your mindset, right? Do you have like, or is it just because you want to show it off to your friends at a barbecue? Like there's a very big distinction there. And I think it's really, if you're going to, join this realm of people who want to be capable, then you need to go get training. Uh, so I think more avenues to do that is always better. I'm probably a poor example because I'm spoiled. You know, being in, during my time as Special Forces, uh, I was at the high point. We, I got to train with so many awesome shooters paid for on the Army's die. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of spoiled. So here I am, you know, I'll call, call myself out. Here I am poo-pooing, you know, the tactical training industry and some of their prices. But, you know, I was spoiled. All that was free for me. So, again, uh, I, I could be way off here, but, you know, a lot of these guys could be like, hey, this is what quality training costs. Uh, but because I never had to pay it, the Army did, you know, that could just be skewing my version. But, you know, I, I got to train with all these awesome guys. And to tie it into what you just said, and this is something that irked me years ago within Special Forces. So I was an instructor at our main CQB facility. I was a flat range instructor. And we were talking about budgeting and this and that. And I was arguing to get more like guys like Kyle Lamb there, uh, get Todd Jarrett, you know, get big time shooters there to show us how to shoot better. And they're like, well, Jeff, you shoot just fine. You know why? We don't need that. I said, you know why I shoot this way is because before I was an instructor, when I was back on the team, we were going to all these great training courses. We're going to Mid-South. We're going to Blackwater. We're going to Darcy. You know, I got to try and shoot with Todd Jarrett. I shot with all these guys, paid for in the Army Dime. They made me, you know, the, the good shooter I am. And I have some natural skill, but really I had received awesome training. So to get at a great level, you do have to go outside 
to training courses that do push yourself, that pushes, you know, pushes you or an instructor that does push you. So I think sooner or later, you'll come to a point within your own shooting, hey, how do I get to the next level? And it could be going to training courses uh, or, you know, shooting matches and make sure you shoot matches with people that are better than you so you can hopefully they force you to get better but i think yeah if you if you take a serious look at it and look at yourself you'll come to a point where you okay how do i cross that next level so i think that's gonna be the, the tricky part is to get people to that point where like i want to get better at this that's always it's always the challenge all right one more question jeff and um maybe you remember this from the last time around but if there was one thing you get people to stop doing today, what would that be? One thing I get people to stop doing. My what's my latest thing? Uh, what did I? I don't remember what I said last time. Uh, see, I don't either. Um, and I don't want to say the same thing again. I, mean, I know. Uh, give me two answers, and then you know I'll go back and, and make sure it's different than the first time. Around. All right. Well, I, I, what still hurts me is pretending to follow the target down after they shoot. That's what she said last time. Okay. Yeah. yeah now I remember. Uh, I can't. Yeah, I can't use that again. <laughs> Uh, let's see. I don't get people to stop doing that's it's really good. Mm. I'm gonna need a minute here. I have to, have to think deep. So the beauty of editing is that I can make your minute take 10 seconds. Yeah, uh, let's see. People stop. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, what do I want people to stop doing now? Is making horrible, crappy. YouTube videos uh, on, you know, shooting techniques. There's a ton of hot garbage out there. YouTube is a great place to learn. You know, I'm, I can't, I can't bash YouTube. I just started a YouTube channel. So it's an awesome platform. And, you know, maybe my channel is not the best. I think it's pretty cool, but you know, um, there could be people that could just pick it apart. I don't know, but there is legitimately a lot of hot garbage on there. And uh, it does take some wading through it. And there's some amazing stuff on there too. There are some awesome YouTube channels and people I respect that do great things on there, but there's a lot of garbage uh, that people take it as gospel. And I think, you know, if I could stop one thing and be like, all right, there are never any nevers in combat. So if they, if they start out a video where never do this already, I'm like, okay, well, you just lost me because there could be a time you have to do it. So, all right. Um, Jeff, thank you very much. It's always, always a pleasure. Yes, I'm glad to be here. It was a good talk. All right, and there you have it. That was round two with Jeff Gerwich of Modern Tactical. Do check out his YouTube channel. I will leave a link to it in the show notes for this episode, as well as post a video uh, that started this whole conversation and we kind of wandered all over the place. But hopefully you got a lot of lessons learned out of this one. We spend quite a bit of time talking about optics because I feel like that ends up being the main thing people argue the most about when it comes to how to configure their weapons. And as you heard Jeff say, the new standard is LPVO with offset red dot. Vice uh, that, you can do LPVO with offset iron sights. Vice that, just go ahead and run it the way we always have because those things matter a whole lot less uh, if you're just getting started. Uh, the more important thing is you need to get out there and actually go train and practice and learn these skills from those who can teach them to you. So that said, let's take away the big lesson of the day, and that is don't game your entire system around one particular use that you think you're going to use your your gun for. You know, uh, in serious use and combat uses, as Jeff had experienced, but also thinking in terms of 
of civil unrest and other issues like that. Don't, you know, configure your whole lifestyle and weapon around one particular situation that might pop up and then think that, well, if I have a different situation pop up, then I'll run back to the safe and grab a different rifle. You you don't know what's going to happen. So always consider that the bad guy gets a vote and you should think, hey, maybe I should be a little bit more generally prepared to handle things uh, in a broader spectrum of conflict. All right, that is it for me today. Have a wonderful day and I will catch you next time. This is Matt signing out.